Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Jack Benny Show from the 1952-1953 season. Tonight's episode is a lot of fun. Uh, we get to hear Jack's and his writers and his cast's take on Ernest Hemingway, uh, the short story that uh, was adapted into the movie The Snows of Kilimanjaro, uh, is uh, what is going to be our subject matter in the last part of the episode for the skit, which should be a lot of fun. And then after that, we have the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show. And on that episode, we get a chance to uh, talk about 4D movies. It's, of course, not a thing, but 3D movies were really big at the time. I'll get more into that at the beginning of that episode. I'll talk about that in an old podcast I did. Anyway, it also has actor Hans Conried on there, and so I included part of the Hans Conried interview with Chuck Shaden that I think you'll like to hear. And then after that, we have the Jack Benny Show with Jack being sick from 1943, and they have guest hosts George Burns and Gracie Allen. So a big night all around for you, and a night where I've the episodes are so important that. I've done intros to all of them at different times, so you'll hear me come back in and introduce every episode as we go. I know this Phil Harris episode (laughs) isn't the right one for the right week, but we'll get that all straightened out as we go. Anyway, enjoy this. Great episodes all around. Um, Boy, I was going to point out which one I thought was the best or something, but they're all just solid, solid episodes. I really like the Phil Harris show this week and last week, too. It's Phil Harris has been really coming on strong. Anyway, enjoy everything tonight, and we will see you next week. The Lucky Strike program starring Jack Benny with Barry Livingston, Rochester, Dennis Day, Bob Crosby, the Sportsman Quartet, and yours truly, Don Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, yesterday Jack Benny returned from a trip to New York where he attended a dinner given for Bob Hope by the Friars Club. Right now it's morning and Jack is just getting up. Ah, good morning, Rochester. Good morning, boss. How'd you sleep? Oh, pretty good. Only I was awfully cold last night. You're cold every night. Maybe you haven't got enough blood. Rochester, I'm not anemic. Now lay out my clothes and get me a clean shirt. I don't want to be late for rehearsal. Yes, sir. (laughs) <laughs> Not anemic. I wonder what he'd say if he found out that every morning I sneak in the bathroom and put ketchup on his razor to keep up his morale. <laughs> now, let's see. The shirt should be in this drawer. Socks, handkerchiefs, sweaters. Uh-oh, what's this? A bottle of ketchup. Hmm. Rochester, how about my shirt? Coming, boss. Here it is. Oh, thanks. Say, boss, while I was getting the shirt out of the drawer, I noticed a bottle of ketchup. Oh, you did, eh? Yeah. Where'd you get it? Rochester, come here a minute. Huh? I got a little surprise for you. Surprise? Yeah, if you keep putting it on, I'm going to keep scraping it off. I'm not wasting it just to please my vanity. 
Rochester. Look, I want to... I get it. Hello, Jack. Oh, hello, Mary. Come on in. When did you get back from New York? Oh, about 4 o'clock this morning. It was a nice trip, though. How'd the Bob Hope dinner turn out? Oh, it was swell. Everybody was there. Gee, what celebrities. And you know what? I sat on the dais right next to Bernard Baruch. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. You haven't seen him since you went to school together. <laughs> you know, Mary, you always say the cutest things just before you get a cut in salary. <laughs> Oh, I was only teasing. Now, you better hurry. We'll be late for rehearsal. Why? We've got a lot of... Oh, my goodness, look what time it is. I never realized it was this late. You still have to shave. I know, I know. It won't take long. I'll take off my tie. I'll get the razor. I'll get the ketchup. <laughs> we haven't time for that now. You go get the car, Rochester. We'll be down in a minute. Try the motor again, Rochester. Yes, Try it again, Rochester. Only this time, step on the throttle, advance the spark, pull out the choke, and hold down the clutch. Keep talking, boss. So far, you haven't named one thing we've got. <laughs> all right, all right. Try the motor again. Jack, last month when the automobile show was in town, you said you were going down and look at a new car. I did, but the one I wanted to buy, they're not making yet. You see, it's that revolutionary car with three wheels. Three wheels? Is that good? It's one more than we've got now. <laughs> oh, stop. And try the motor again. <laughs> yes, sir. There we are. I knew we wouldn't have any trouble. Rochester, here we are at the studio. Yes, sir. See, I wish there were some place to park along the street here. Oh, for heaven's sake, Jack. Why don't you put it in a parking lot? Yeah, I guess we'll have to. All right, Rochester, drive in here. Oh, boy, a real parking lot. Wait till I tell the boys down at the lodge about this. <laughs> Never mind, just go in. Now, Rochester, you go over and pay the attendant. Miss Livingston and I are going into the studio. Yes, sir. Come on, Mary. Hey, Jack, look at that beautiful car driving in. Gee, what a car. A chauffeur in uniform and everything. Must be the president of the network. Here we are, sir, CBS. Thank you, James. It's Dennis. Let's watch this. I'll get your things out of the car, sir. Your coat, sir. Thank you. Your hat, sir. Thank you. Your Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Your Buck Rogers disintegrator. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, hey, Dennis. Dennis. Huh? 
Oh, hello, Mr. Benny. Hello, Mary. Gee, Dennis, I've never seen such a beautiful car. Where'd you get it? Oh, my mother gave it to me for a going-away present. Dennis, where are you going? Oh, she doesn't care as long as I go. <laughs> what? The tank holds 300 gallons of gas. <laughs> well, I'll chip in for the road maps. Say, Dennis... You can drive a car. How come you've got a chauffeur? Oh, well, I was talking to the man who prepares my income tax, and he told me I ought to get some more deductible items. Oh, is your chauffeur deductible? Yeah, James deductible. <laughs> Cut that off! We'd better get into the studio. we would be late. Yeah, come on. Let's go. All right, fellas. Okay, fellas, let's run through that number once more. Uh, hold it, Bob. Hold it. I'm here. Oh, hi, Jack. Uh, I was just rehearsing the band. Well, like... Say, wait a minute. Aren't some of the boys missing? Yeah, Remley, Bagby, and Sammy the drummer won't be here for the show. Why not? Well, last night they were listening to a quiz program, and the MC was asking questions about arithmetic. What's that got to do with it? Well, one of the questions was about fractions. It was, how many times will one-fifth go into three? <laughs> So they started working it out. Uh-huh. And by the time they killed off 22 fifths, they lost interest in the answer. I can't understand. I thought when Phil Harris left, the boys would change. Oh, they will, Jack. They will. But when? Well, as soon as they find out that Phil is gone. Well, Bob, who do they think you are? Well, I don't know, but they keep calling me Alice. <laughs> Well, don't worry, Bob. For five years, they thought I was Evelyn and her magic violin. Gosh, the free dinners that I've had. Well, go on with the rehearsal, Bob, so we can get into the sketch here. Well, shall I rehearse my song first, Mr. Benny? Yes, go ahead, Dennis. Then we'll go right on with the play. Again with you 
Just the way we are tonight I will keep my promise true For you are my guiding Very good. And now, kids, let's rehearse the play we're going to do. Oh, Don. Oh, yes, Jack. Uh, set the scene, will you? Okay. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present our version of The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Produced by 20th Century Fox, makers of that new picture, Niagara. Starring yours truly, Don Wilson. Don. <laughs> Stick to the script. You weren't the star of Niagara. I know, but I need the publicity. My calendars aren't selling at all. <laughs> Just read what's written, will you please? Okay. You spent a whole week writing this. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we present our version of The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which starred Gregory Peck, Susan Hayward, and Ava Gardner. Our story opens in the African jungle, at the foot of the majestic snow-capped mountain, Kilimanjaro. <laughs> Susan, look at me, lying here helpless, while all the members of my safari are starving because I can't go out and hunt fresh meat for them. Don't worry about that. This morning I went out in the jungle and killed a lion. But wait a minute, Susan. We're out of ammunition. How did you kill the lion? I strangled it. Why? How in the world... How in the world could you possibly bring yourself to strangle a lion? I used one hand. I gave it a fighting chance. <laughs> when is that medicine coming? When will the plane get here? When, when, when? The plane didn't arrive with the medicine and I got worse. So in desperation, Susan sent for a native witch doctor. The witch doctor came and for the next two hours, he kept stuffing hot sand into my mouth. When my hat got too big for me, I realized he was shrinking my head. 
Fortunately, I stopped him in time. But to this day, I wear a size two and three eighths. <laughs> I shall never forget that witch doctor. He sprinkled me with a powder made from ground tiger teeth. Then he chanted his weird voodoo incantation. Oh, doctor, I'm in such pain. Here, you take on these herbs. You come morning, son, you'll feel all the better like me. Oh, that's wonderful, doctor. How much do I owe you? Nothing. Blue Cross. <laughs> the witch doctor left. And as the night wore on, my feverish mind was frightened by the sounds of the jungle. The roar of the lion. Yeah. <laughs> cry of the wild boar, <laughs> the frightened whinny of our horses, <laughs> the wild chattering of the monkeys, <laughs> the maniacal screech of the hyena, sound of the crocodile, <laughs> the terrifying sound of the crocodile. I knew if I kept trying, I'd find something that Mel Blanc couldn't do. <laughs> Before he's even starting Wah, wah, wah In his mouth he's putting all at once a carton And a box of matches We eat man and when we're through We all smoke his lucky too. Lucky strike is much better tasting Digga, digga, doo, digga, doo How I go, I 
better. Their song had put me in a romantic mood. I began to think of all the girls I had known. Constance Forsythe, Rosalind Winston, Valerie Fitzgerald, Don Wilson. <laughs> I really thought of Marilyn Monroe, but Don's calendars aren't selling. <laughs> Then I began to think of the first girl I had ever really loved. It was in Spain. I met her in Madrid. Like all Latin, she was impulsive and romantic and beautiful. And best of all, she was in love with me. I shall never forget my first meeting with Maria. I said to her, It's a lovely place you have here, senorita. Gracias, senor. And it's very big, too. Si, senor. Gee, it's so big. Do you know how much it costs? No, I just work here. Senor May owns the company. <laughs> there, too? <laughs> that was how my romance with Maria started. And it blossomed rapidly. We went everywhere together, dancing, swimming. And finally, she took me to the bullfights. <laughs> first time at a bullfight, and I didn't know much about this Latin sport, but the traditional blare of trumpets, the first event got underway. Look, look, here comes the bull. Wow, he looks big. Ooh, here comes the Toreador. Hey, dig that crazy steak knife. <laughs> The crowd yelled and showered him with gifts. Maria took the rose out of her hair and threw it to him. I didn't have a rose, so I just threw him my hair. <laughs> but when I threw it, my hair sailed out in a wide circle and landed back on my head. It was the toupee I had bought in Australia. <laughs> yes, my thoughts were all of Maria at this time, until I felt the throbbing of my leg. Great waves of pain swept over me and washed me back into consciousness in my camp in Africa. Susan was still standing guard over me. She must have realized I had been dreaming of Maria because she said, Wipe that smile off your face, Mac! <laughs> oh, it's you, Susan. I must... <laughs> I must have been dreaming. Has the plane arrived yet with the medicine? No, they were halfway across the Atlantic and they had to turn back for the peroxide. For my leg? No, for me. I wasn't born a blonde. <laughs> Susan's voice soothed me. <laughs> and again I fell asleep. I forgot the pain of the present as I remembered the pleasures of the past. And it was at this point I remembered... Ava. I first met Ava in Paris. Gay Paris. Ava had everything. Beauty, poise.
poise and intelligence. But even though she was a society heiress, she insisted on earning her living by singing in a tiny French nightclub called the Bayou. I shall never forget the first time I heard her as she sang. Tonight, we're going to do the town. I'm going to start by drinking champagne out of your slipper. Come on, put it on the table. Okay, there. Go ahead, start pouring. Take your foot out of it first. <laughs> That's better. Now, I'll fill the slipper with champagne for me. There. Now, I'll fill your other slipper for you. is bigger than my right. Oh, well, tell me. <laughs> tell me, Ava, am I the first man who ever drank champagne from your slipper? Oh, they all do. You're kidding. No, I'm not. When I walk home from here, I sound like Chloe coming through the swamp. <laughs> Snows of Kilimanjaro. 
Jack will be back in just a moment, friends. But first, a word to cigarette smokers. Nothing, no nothing, beats better taste. And... Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. For Lucky's strike means fine tobacco, richer tasting. Fine tobacco. Lucky's taste better. Cleaner, fresher, smoother. Lucky strike. Lucky strike. Friends, in a cigarette, nothing, no nothing, beats better taste. And Lucky's taste better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. No wonder you find faithful Lucky smokers everywhere. Among college students, for instance. A nationwide survey, based on actual student interviews in 80 leading colleges, reveals that more smokers in the colleges prefer Lucky's than any other cigarette, and by a wide margin. What's more... Lucky Strike gained far more smokers than the nation's two other principal brands combined. And why? The number one reason the students gave for smoking Lucky's was better taste. Yes, like so many of us, these college students prefer Lucky's, the cigarette that tastes better, cleaner, fresher, smoother. So for the better taste that means more smoking enjoyment, be happy, go Lucky. Next time, ask for a carton of Lucky Strike. Be happy, go lucky, get better taste today. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes another program, and we'll be back with you again. <laughs> what was that? A crocodile, I finally made it. <laughs> Folks, we're a little late. Jack program is written by Sam Perrin, Milt Josephsburg, George Balzer, John Packerberry, and produced and transcribed by Hilliard Marks. Be sure to hear The American Way with Horace Height for Lucky Strike every Thursday over this same station. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Phil Harris and Alice Faye Show from the 1952-1953 season. Today's episode I just had to do a podcast for uh, because it has as guest actor Hans Conried, and Hans Conried uh, has done voices for so many different radio shows, and you probably know him best as the voice of Captain Hook from Disney's Peter Pan. Uh, very recognizable voice, and he's in tonight's episode as the Professor. I'm going to attach to the end of the episode an interview with Hans Conried and um, Chuck Shaden. I really suggest you go to Chuck Shaden's site sometime, the Speaking of Radio site, and he has dozens and dozens and dozens of fantastic interviews with all the old-time radio stars that you can listen to. It's a lot of fun. Um, anyway, tonight's episode focuses on Phil and the 4D camera, and 3D was um, really uh, taking off at this time. It was a pretty short fad overall. It, it started off with um, Buana, what was it called? Buana, oh, Buana Devil, uh, an Arch Ubler film in 1952, right at the end of 52, like November of 52, it came out. And 
what was happening here. The reason they went with 3D in films is because uh, Hollywood at this point was just really panicking. You had, um, in 1948, uh, there were 90 million people went to the movies. By 1951, that number had dropped in half to 46 million people that went to the movies. And uh, this uh, information that I've just gotten recently about that drop really makes me understand why they were panicking so much. I mean, if you plot that on a graph, you're like, man, we're going to be at nothing here in a few years. Um, which, of course, they weren't. It all leveled out and things went okay. But they were just panicking that everybody was just staying home and watching TV and not going to come out to watch their movies. So that's why you got all these bizarre formats, the ultra-wide formats, to give you something you couldn't get on TV, VistaVision and CinemaScope and uh, just all these various um, widescreen formats. The other thing you got was them trying to increase the depth of the film so that you so that to make it 3D and pop out at you, and that's what... Um, Wanna Devil was the first movie like that. Then, of course, there was House of Wax, and um, the most famous probably being um, Creature of the Black Lagoon. The but the 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 fad only really lasted from nineteen, like I said, the very end of nineteen fifty two. So this is early on the fad. Now this is early nineteen fifty three that we're in, and it would stop by nineteen fifty five, where the last. Uh, big 3D movies that came out. Um, I guess audiences and studios just kind of got tired of of the whole fad thing. Now, of course, today we're back into the fad of 3D. It feels like maybe we're hitting the tail end of that, but I don't know if it's ever gonna. I don't know if it's gonna go away. I mean, uh, it's a way for theaters to make some extra money. Um, it's certainly, um, the glasses are much better and more comfortable than they ever were and that sort of thing. Uh, I am not a huge fan of 3D myself, just because I think it makes the picture darker and I'd rather see it uh, a, a lighter view. And also with me, I don't know if 3D works that well for me, but because uh, my vision's not the best, it's not horrible, but uh, it just doesn't pop at me so much. Now I remember... Back when I was younger, in the nineteen late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties, we had a, a theater by us. They opened up the um, a new multiplex theater close by, and so this theater started to have financial trouble. I would assume, and uh, it was called the uh, Jerry Lewis Theater, and the Jerry Lewis Theater uh, started showing older and older films and things, and. Uh, more art house stuff and things like that. And then they picked up w one summer on showing 3D films. And so they showed, it was like, um, they usually showed a double feature of two 3D films. And I think every week they changed the 3D films they offered. And so um, my brother-in-law and I would go and watch films almost every week, and so I saw just a ton of the 3D films and really enjoyed a lot of them. It was interesting. Some of them, the 3D wasn't very good, and other ones, 
they were some pretty amazing 3D effects that you just go, whoa, and it really felt like something was coming out to the audience. Uh, and then in the 1980s, uh, a lot of uh, theme parks started to use um, 3D, and they often called it 4D, like Phil. Phil, of course, was ahead of his time. But uh, <laughs> the... Um, 40 they would use you can still go to you know Disneyland and uh, some of the Universal Studios and things and sit in on a 40 film I guess Captain what was it Captain EO wasn't it was the big one with uh, Michael Jackson as the main star right at the height of Michael Jackson's uh, popularity back in like 80 probably 84 85 something like that Anyway, these 4D films would um, use 3D and also have intermixed um, uh, 4D. 4D was always, what's the fourth dimension? It would be three dimensions makes a pop out of the screen. Then what's the fourth? Um, whether the fourth was, was smell or something, but uh, people were always saying that they were going to create a smell-o-vision <laughs> film. I don't know if anybody actually ever did. But but the 4D usually that theaters use is the feeling of touch. So uh, they would um, have like air spray hoses that would, uh, when, when rats were supposedly running up the theater, my wife hated this, uh, then they'd have it spray your feet with, with air and so you'd just kind of freak out. And then they'd, uh, or if they had a, a water scene happening, they could spray little uh, spurts of water on you. Um, until this makes the 4D feeling, um, it's definitely a novelty and, and kind of a strange way to see any kind of film. But uh, if you're ever in a theme park, you might want to check that out. And of course, um, in 2007, I believe, is when we started to get th 3D back in the theaters again. And now in 2013, we still have a lot of 3D films coming out. Um, uh, we're starting locally to get more where they come out in 3D, and this the um, theater also features a 2D version of the film. And so my wife and I pick the 2D version usually because most of the films um, don't utilize the 3D in a way that uh, I think is all that effective. Anyway, um, just an interesting uh, point in time. Jack, I think, will also... If I remember right, coming up here sometime, we'll uh, have an episode based on 3D. Um, I don't know if any other of the uh, radio shows touch on it, but an interesting thing to have. Um, another thing that points out how 3D was so big is it's featured in uh, Mad Magazine. Issue number 12 uh, is all about 3D, and... Um, to me, anytime something's featured in Mad Magazine, it tells you it's a big phenomenon. So, uh, so there's that. And also, for our picture today, I, I grabbed the cover of Time Magazine from 1953, in which the cover is uh, showing 3D. Um, it's not in 3D, but it's, it's showing kind of an audience feel for 3D. I thought it was a good cover, so we used that. Um, anyway... Enjoy today's show. Um, love Phil Harris and Alice Faye. We've got new episodes coming at you every week until uh, 
about sometime in May. Um, I think we're missing the final six episodes of this season. Hopefully someday uh, they will get released. And um, we, But we do have the whole beginning of next season all available to us, so we're in a good, pretty good spot with um, the Phil Harris and Alice Faye show. Uh, anyway, enjoy it, and uh, we will see you next time. RCA Victor, world leader in radio, first in recorded music, and first in television, presents Transcribe, the Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show. For your enjoyment, here is the Phil Harris, Alice Faye Show, written by Ray Singer and Dick Chevrolet, with Elliot Lewis, Walter Tetley, Robert North, Janine Roos, Ann Whitfield, Walter Scharf and his music, and yours truly, Bill Foreman. Today, we are living in a scientific age. It's an age of great inventions, and those who have the foresight to get in on the ground floor will make fortunes. Tonight, Phil gets in on the ground floor of a startling new discovery. But more about that later. First, a word from RCA Victor. No matter where you live, you can receive all the TV stations in your area with new RCA Victor television. And the reason is this. RCA Victor's automatic 16-channel UHF-VHF tuner. RCA pioneered in the development of UHF television and, in cooperation with NBC, operated the world's first regularly scheduled UHF television station. As a result of this exclusive experience, RCA Victor brings you a tuner proved far more sensitive than many others. And it's automatic. Turn one knob, click, there's your station. So if you have UHF television now, or expect it in your area, buy a new RCA Victor with the automatic UHF VHF tuner. It's your assurance that if there's a picture in the air, you'll get it. You can buy any new RCA Victor television with this wonderful built-in UHF VHF tuner at modest extra cost. Or you can add it later, when and if UHF television reaches your area. 1953 RCA Victor Television can be yours for as little as $199.95. The budget low price of the 17-inch table model Wayne. See the entire new line of sets at your RCA Victor dealers tomorrow. And remember, every year, more people buy RCA Victor than any other television. And now the stars of the RCA Victor program, Alice Faye and Phil Harris. For the past month, Phil has gone around in the belief that he is the last of the Mohicans. However, last week he found out that the whole thing was a hoax and that Andrew Fasthorse, the man who sold him the idea, was a swindler. This disclosure was too much for Phil, and as we look in on the Harris home, we find our heartbroken hero has locked himself in his room and refuses to be consoled. Just to think that this whole thing was a hoax and I'm not a Mohican chief. Oh, Andrew, you led me to think that I was a big man. Now all I have left to console me are just a few little Indian souvenirs you sold me. My souvenirs. A small birch bark canoe. <laughs> Some buffalo shorts of blue. A scalp with dandruff, too, among my souvenirs. <laughs> A few more tokens rest Within my treasure chest 
The next line is the best, but I can't use it here. <laughs> Who's there? Phil, Phil, please open the door. You can't stay locked in that den forever. You go away and leave me alone. I just want to lie here on my bed of nails and punish myself. <laughs> Stop. Now, look, you haven't had anything to eat or drink for three days, and I brought you something. I prepared your favorite meal. I don't care. I don't want... Well, I guess she's right. After three days without nourishment, I should have something in my stomach. I'll take it, honey. Good. May I bring it in? No, just pour it through the keyhole. <laughs> <laughs> Throw the olive over the transom. <laughs> Open the door. Oh, all right. Well, it's about time. Now, here's your dinner. Eat it and then come in the other room. My brother Willie is I don't want to see him. I don't want to see anybody. Everybody knows that I was taken in by this Indian con man, and I'm ashamed to face him. They must all think I'm stupid. Oh, Phil, you're just being self-conscious. Everybody realizes it wasn't your fault and nobody thinks you're stupid. Well, Alice, how did you make out with... Oh, hiya, Willie. Hello, you big dope. <laughs> there you see, Alice. I told you, I told you. You even Willie, got him... Willie, I won't have you talking that way to Phil. Why not? Because I'm married to him. But when you married him, you didn't know he was a big jerk. I did, too. <laughs> uh... <laughs> well, I mean, he wasn't then. Phil, you're always putting money in a sucker scheme Or some business you don't know anything about From now on, stick to the one thing you're successful at Showmanship You have one of the greatest personalities in show business Ha! He has all the personality of a wet cigar butt <laughs> All right, now wait a minute If there's one thing I've got, it's personality my scintillating smile has been compared favorably to that of Lawrence Welk. <laughs> and it's surpassed only by Liberace's. <laughs> You've got to admit that you can't get more scintillating than that. Well, just promise me one thing, that you won't get mixed up with any more of these con men or invest in any get-rich-quick schemes. Honey, I've learned my lesson. I've learned my... I'll get that. I promise you I won't invest a penny in any more get-rich-quick businesses. I found out once... Oh, hello, Elliot. Hey, Curly, how would you like to invest some money in the greatest invention since the two-ounce shot glass? <laughs> all you have to do is invest $100... Go away, nobody home. But, Curly, all you have... Get your foot out of the door, bud. Try the other side of the street. Get lost. Beat it. I ain't gonna invest nothing with no con men. Con men? Well... <laughs> Curly, can you remember me ever conning you into any proposition where you lost money? Uh, yes. You remember, huh? <laughs> Let me put it this way. Name one thing that I steered you wrong on. Okay. How about the time you sold me that boxing kangaroo with the glass chin? <laughs> Hopalong did not have a glass chin. Some gamblers got to him and paid him to take a dive. <laughs> Leave it to you to find a crooked kangaroo. <laughs> 
I ain't never going to get the time you sold me that racehorse, the one with the three legs. What a nag. Please, tripod was a sturdy steel. <laughs> I will admit he was a little sway back. A little sway back? His stomach bounced on the ground like a basketball. <laughs> the jockey had to dribble him around. <laughs> so I made a couple of little mistakes. After all, I'm only human. Now look, Curly, this proposition is guaranteed. All you have to do is put up a hundred dollars. Oh, that at the door? I... Oh, hello, Elliot. Hello, Alice. Goodbye, Alice. Now look, Curly. <laughs> For a minute monetary consideration, you can become an industrial tycoon. Elliot, stop it. What's the matter? I say something dirty? <laughs> now, Elliot, Phil is not investing in anything. But all he has to do is invest a few dollars and he can become rich in no time. Now, Phil, don't listen to him. There is no way you can invest a few dollars and get rich quick. That is where you are wrong. And, Curly, you're a living proof of it. What do you mean? You invested $2 in a marriage license and became a millionaire overnight. <laughs> he only invested $1. He made me put up my half. Well, I only had two bucks at the time and I didn't want to put all my eggs in one basket. <laughs> now, Curly, just listen to my proposition. Believe me, it's great. All right, I'll listen, no, I'll don't listen. don't do it. No, please, really, Alice. Curly... What is every movie studio in Hollywood trying to get their hands on right now? The guy who invented television. <laughs> no. Curly, I'll tell you what the biggest thing is. Phil, don't listen to One me. One of the greatest Hold inventions to hit Hollywood in a long Elliot, time is within talking. your grasp, Curly. I'll just have to say now, and drown him out. I want you to pay attention to me and I'll explain the whole thing. This can't be love because I feel so well. No sobs, no sorrows, no sighs This can't be love, I get no dizzy spell My head is not in the sky My heart does not stand still Just hear it beat This is too sweet to be love This can't be love because I feel so well but still I love to look in your eyes The love bug is so infectious It gets under your skin And if you fight it It's gotta win This can't be love Because I feel so well No sobs, no sobs, no sorrows, no sighs This can't be love I get no dizzy spell Stand still, just hear it beat. This is too sweet to be loved. This can't be loved because I feel so well. But still I love to look in your eyes. Love to look in your wonderful eyes. And there, so you can see easily why this is such a great invention. How do you like my proposition, Curly? 
I heard everything but the words. <laughs> I didn't hear a word you said. Alice was making too much noise. I'll tell you again. This invention... Bill, don't you dare listen to him. She's fighting me. <laughs> Here, Alice, dear. Have a piece of candy. Thank you. That'll keep her quiet for a while, Curly. <laughs> what makes you think so? It's a bonbon filled with laryngitis germs. <laughs> Stop it already <laughs> Alice, if he wants to explain his proposition, let him It ain't gonna do no harm just to listen I'm only gonna listen Thank you Now look, Curly The biggest thing in Hollywood right now is three-dimensional pictures And I know a guy who invented a camera Elliot, I got news for you Three-dimension is great But every studio in Hollywood already has a three-dimension camera Three-dimension, yes But none of them have Four-dimension <laughs> Four dimensions? People are investing money in this dimensional You want to put money in it, huh, Curly? No, 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 no <laughs> Of course, if you can show me pictures in four dimensions I can see where it'd be great I might invest a little in it Oh, Phil, stop it You don't even know what the four dimensions are I do, too the four dimensions are East, West, North, and South <laughs> Ain't that right, Elliot? No, but in your case, I'll make an exception Give me the money Not so fast <laughs> Now, first tell me Just how does this camera, how does it work? Well, I, I don't understand this scientific stuff The inventor explained it to me in technical language And all I know is that he's got a camera That makes the actors stand right out of the screen yeah? Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Yeah, but it's it's probably expensive and takes special equipment like that Cinerama. They need a big curved screen in the theater. No, no, not with my friend's invention. He don't need a curved screen. He uses a flat screen and curved actors. <laughs> This puts a different light on the deal I don't see anything wrong With investing a little money In a good curved actress He said actor I know what he said Leave me alone <laughs> Elliot, if this guy's invention Is so good Then how come the movie studios Haven't bought it? They tried to But he won't sell it to him. He's one of those Eccentric inventors And he don't trust Nobody but me He ain't eccentric He's nuts <laughs> No, if I'm interested No, look, Curly Why don't you see how the camera works first? I can arrange for us to get a private demonstration If you don't like it, you don't have to put any money in it Well, if I can see the thing before I invest, that's different I'll tell you what you do, Elliot Call your friend and tell him that we're coming over Well, I can't call him, he hasn't got a telephone <laughs> He don't believe in it <laughs> What do you mean he don't believe in it? When Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone, my friend called him up and told him it would never work, and he's stubborn. <laughs> okay, do you want to drive over and see him? You think we ought to? No, I'm, it's all right with me if you want to. Well, I know, but it's, it's kind of late to be calling on the guy. No, 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 he stays up all night. Yeah? Where's the guy live? He's got a cute little place out in the woods. <laughs> Let's go. Elliot. Mm hmm? 
Is this the place where he lives? Yeah. It's a scary, creepy-looking joint, ain't it? Are you sure he don't mind having people drop in on him? No, he's a sweet old man. Open the gate, Curly. Okay. Where's the latch? Right under that sign on the fence that says, Don't touch high voltage. (laughs) (laughs) It's cute. (laughs) But I like the sign next to it, the one that says, Beware of vicious dogs, watch out for crocodiles, and don't tease the boa constrictor. (laughs) (laughs) Elliot... I don't know what makes me say this, but I don't think he's in the mood for company. Oh, Curly, you're super sensitive. Those signs don't mean anything. He's a sweet, gentle old man, and he wouldn't harm a fly. Just likes to kill people, huh? <laughs> Look, I ain't gonna touch no electric fence. Now, let's get out no, of here. No, no, Curly, we came this far, and we're not gonna leave until we see Mr. Hyde. But I don't want to go into... <laughs> Mr. Hyde? What's his first name, Jekyll? No, Formalda. <laughs> Formalda High. Why don't you go over and lean on the fence? Curly, I don't know his first name. Everybody calls him Professor. Now, come on. All we got to do to get in is see Professor Hyde, and that shouldn't be too hard. No, no, no. All we have to do is swim past the crocodiles, charm a boa constrictor, and uh, and it, it seems to me there was something else. Oh, yeah, Lassie and her babies. <laughs> Will you come on? Let's get out of here. Curly, hey, I know a way we can get past these dogs. How? You know the old saying, music has charms to soothe the savage beast? Yeah. Well, you sing to him. It ain't music, but it's as close as we can get. (laughs) Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Don't let the moon break your heart. Love blooms at night. In daylight it dies. Don't let the stars get in your eyes. Keep your heart from me, for someday I'll return. And you know you're the only one I'll ever love. Too many nights, too many stars, too many moons could change your mind. If I'm gone too long, don't forget where you belong. When the stars come out, remember you're mine. Don't let the stars get in your eyes, don't let the moon break your heart. Love blooms at night in day. Don't let the stars get in your eyes Keep your heart for me For someday I'll return And you know you're the only one I'll ever love Too many miles Too many days Too many nights to be alone Oh, please keep your heart While we're apart Don't linger in the moonlight when I'm gone Curly. 
Look, Elliot, we might as well forget about this whole thing and go home. I'm not going to no, walk No, let's it. not give up. There were only some way we could distract the dog's attention. If we had some bones we could throw them, we could keep them busy in sneak packs. That's a good idea, great idea. But where are we going to find some bones to throw at them away out here? Hey, fellas, what are you doing out here? <laughs> well, if it ain't spare ribs, a bruisio. <laughs> why are you guys hanging around outside Professor Hyde's house? Oh, uh, why, we came out here to see all of these beautiful dogs. Hey, Julius, uh, how'd you like to feed them? I wouldn't mind, but I ain't got nothing to eat. Well, why don't you just walk in and let them take pot luck? <laughs> what are you trying to do? Make kibble out of me little body? All we want to do oh, is Curly, just... look, he ain't gonna help us. We'll have to get rid of the dog some other way. Yeah, yeah, listen to that. How are we gonna get rid of them vicious hounds? And... I'll get rid of them for you. All right, you stupid-looking much. Go back to your kennel. Beat it before I cut your legs down and make dog's horns out of you. I'll be darned. Look at them run. They're afraid of them. Naturally, they're smart dogs. <laughs> they know when they've met their match. Hey, kid, how'd you do that? Easy. I delivered the groceries one day and they bit me, so I bit them back. <laughs> no wonder they're foaming at the mouth. Hey, look, kid, as long as you've been here before, you can help us. Take us in with you. Sure, come on. Hey, wait a minute. How we get past this electric fence? I just turned the switch off right here. Now, follow me. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute now. What do we do when we come to them crocodiles? Show them you ain't afraid of them. Just wade past them like they wasn't there. One of them opens his mouth to snap at you, raise your foot and kick him in the nose. What if I miss? You always got your other foot left for a second, <laughs> Comforting. Oh, Curly, there's nothing to worry about now. We're at the house. I'll knock. Who's out there? It's me, Dr. Lewis. Oh, I'll be right out, Doctor. <laughs> Dr. Lewis? Yeah. I told him I was a fellow inventor to get on a good side of him. <laughs> Hello, Professor. Well, if it isn't Dr. Lewis, the inventor of the gas blanket. <laughs> gas blanket? I had to make it gas. He knows the guy who invented the electric blanket. <laughs> oh, oh. Oh, it's so nice to have you here, Doctor. Won't you come in, please? Yes, thank you. Professor, I'd like you to meet my colleague, Dr. Harris. Dr. Harris? Yes, I invented the kerosene sheet. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know Julius here. Professor Julius, to you, the inventor of the cold burning filler. <laughs> I do believe the little lad is pulling our legs, gentlemen. <laughs> but it is a great pleasure to have such distinguished scholars in my humble abode. Well, thank you, Professor. And look, we're very anxious to see that fourth dimension camera you invented. Oh, yes, of course, indeed you do. Oh, yes. That's a gem, and it will revolutionize the theater industry just as my other inventions have. 
Oh, you have other theatrical inventions? Oh, but yes, of course. My, my first contribution to the histrionic arts was to the legitimate theater. Um, I invented the reverso light. I could have sworn I invented that. <laughs> what is it? Well, now, with this invention, there's no such thing as a flop play. Every play is a hit. Well, how does that work? Well, you know the footlights that shine in the actors' faces and prevent them from seeing the audience? Yes. I reverse the lights. <laughs> now they shine in the faces of the audience. They can't see a darn thing that's happening on the stage. <laughs> Saves a lot of money on actors, too. Professor, look, this is all very interesting, but we're just here to see your fourth dimension machine. Oh, yes, of course, indeed you do. My greatest brainchild, the flickerscope. Just be seated, gentlemen, and I shall proceed with the demonstration. <clears throat> now, these fourth-dimensional pictures were taken with my revolutionary camera-scope, and now you will see them through the magic of my amazing projectoscope. We'll turn the lights out and start the demonstration. Wait a minute, Professor. Where's the uh, screen-scope? With my invention, we don't need a screenoscope. Now, just sit down, gentlemen. On what? On your cetoscope. <laughs> <laughs> Professor, how come you don't use a screen? Because with my fourth dimension projectoscope, the actors are not on the screen. But you, the audience, get the impression that they're right in the room with you, in front of you, in back of you, and all around you. Hey, that sounds great. Hey, turn it on. I want to see this. All right, here we go. This is a Western picture, gentlemen, and watch the way the action takes place all around you. Hark, in the distance we hear the rustlers riding toward us. Here they come. Look at them ride. Look at who ride. I don't see nothing. <laughs> Well, they're in back of you. Turn around. In back of me where? Too late. They just went that away. <laughs> Which away? Oh, they just rolled out of the room. Now they're in the kitchen. <laughs> now they're coming out of the bathroom. They left the light on. Here they come. Everybody dies. I haven't seen a thing yet. <laughs> what was that? The U.S. Calvary! <laughs> hey, you nearsighted something? Oh, look at them in their beautiful blue uniforms against that red sky. Blue uniforms? Red sky? Oh, yes, this is all in color. Oh, fine. Now I'm not seeing nothing in color. <laughs> Here they come. They're chasing the rustlers. <laughs> and there they go, riding into the distance. The end. <laughs> well, how'd you like it? Speedy little actors, aren't they? <laughs> I didn't see a darn thing. <laughs> Nobody. I'm looking all over. I'm looking everywhere. I didn't... Not even Hoot Gibson, I didn't see. <laughs> Did you see anybody, Elliot? No. But I guess because I'm wearing my flat eyes today. <laughs> How did you like it, little Julius? Sensational. That was a beautiful demonstration of absolutely nothing. <laughs> uh, 
This is Phil Harris again. Television for 1953 promises to be bigger and better than ever before, with millions of dollars going into great new shows featuring your favorite stars. And more and more people are going to be enjoying television reception at its finest, thanks to new, improved RCA Victor Television for 1953. Television that's now five ways finer than ever before. RCA Victor is America's finest television. And America's finest television deserves America's finest service. That's why wise RCA Victor television owners buy an RCA Victor factory service contract with their set. That way, they're sure of installation service and adjustment of their set by RCA's own technicians. Only RCA Victor television owners enjoy this coast-to-coast factory service. Buy RCA Victor service with your RCA Victor television set. America's finest service for America's finest television. This is Phil again. Remember, your income tax must be filed by March 15th. Those filing this year for the first time may need advice and assistance in filling out their returns. Call at the local collector's office if you need help. Thanks and... Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Included in this program transcribed was Hans Conry. The part of Julius was played by Walter Tetley. No record collection is really complete without the 101 bestsellers. These RCA Victor records by the world's greatest artists are the 101 top-selling records of all time. And they include every type of music, from symphonies and concertos to dance tunes and jazz hits. Make sure your record library includes this great music. Check RCA Victor's latest list of the 101 best-selling records at your record dealers tomorrow. Next, hear Theater Guild on the air on NBC. We've taken our Those Were the Days microphones out to the Pheasant Run Playhouse in St. Charles, Illinois, where Hans Conried is starring in Norman Is That You? right now through February 7th. And if you haven't gotten out here yet, you better mark that date on your calendar because you wouldn't want to miss seeing a great man in a great show. And we've got a man right here, and that is Hans Conried. Welcome to Those Were the Days, Hans. Thank you, Chuck. It's good to be here. Hey, we'd like to talk a little bit about... Uh, about the good old days of good old radio. You want and maybe, to see an old man cry? Oh, you won't, you won't cry. Can we take you away from the world of the stage and television for a little while and through the magic of radio? I think they'd be radio? very grateful, probably. <laughs> the stage would <laughs> be? <laughs> We'd like to turn the clock back maybe 25 or 35 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, a young man named Hans Conried gets his first radio job in in Hollywood, is mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. What was that well, first Well, euphemistically, job? we called it Hollywood, you mm-hmm. must understand. It was really Los Angeles. Yeah. Uh, we broadcast, this was uh, KECA, was broadcast in one of the upper stories of a, uh, an automobile warehouse. Uh, no, it was a well-established uh, 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 station. KECA was in those days called the aristocrat of the air since there was no commercials. It was the private hobby of a gentleman who was had the auto, uh-huh. the Packard Agency, a most distinguished uh, automobile in those days. Uh, he also owned the station uh, KECA that was the blue 
network. Mm-hmm. It was part of the mm-hmm. NBC uh, combine, you see, or you know, attached to the NBC. But this was his own little baby that he had begun on a kitchen table, actually, the entire station really? function. And uh, the station played, uh, as late as 1935, only classical music, no popular music in those days. And it had news broadcasts. And one uh, day they decided that they wanted to expand themselves into the world of theater, and the only thing they could do uh, uh, in measure uh, comparable to the uh, quality of their music was to have Shakespeare. And they did, since no one knew how to cut mm-hmm. Shakespeare, there were, there were no one prepared uh, dramatically there in that station, uh, they had their fine news announcer act as the announcer for the show program, and they had a producer who was not too well-versed in Shakespeare. But at any rate, we did uncut Shakespeare, not scripts, but we took the book. We all made sure we all had uh-huh. the same book. And we started uh, page one of Act One, Scene One, and worked, worked right through. And that, those programs took three hours, three and a half hours, three and three-quarter hours. And, no and I heard the first broadcast huh? in the uh-huh. series. And uh, I had just emigrated to California from New York, and I... With all the confidence of a young man of 18, I felt that I certainly knew enough, and I applied for a job, and they hired me uh, doing classical parts. And from that, uh, I took many subsequent steps downward and continued <laughs> as an actor in radio uh, for a wonderful 20-year period. My goodness. What was your, what was your salary at that time? What, what kind of Oh, uh, we worked fee? two days for it, and I think I got uh, the 12.50. Uh, because I must remember, I played three parts. They were all small parts, uh-huh. you understand. Either twelve fifty or fifteen dollars, which was princely. <laughs> no, indeed. And during the depression uh-huh. in sure. California, the, the depression came along later. Uh, you must remember that if you went to a supermarket in those days uh, with a ten dollar bill, the boy had to help you carry the parcel out to the car if you had a car. You know. Mm. Uh, so that was quite. And then uh, uh, other things. That was one of the very best shows because of the dignity and prestige. Uh, I worked then about town for fifty cents a night. Uh, Doing what? Doing what? Well, uh, learning my craft. Uh There was a show called, uh, there was a very successful show in New York called It Happened, uh, A March of Time. Mm -hmm. And we had a cheap carbon copy of it called It Happened Today. And there were five of us uh, who got paid 50 cents a night. Uh, I remember in one program I counted, I played in a 24-minute, 30-minute, 30-minute show was 24 minutes, I think, something. Uh I played uh, 18 parts. And, 18? Uh, well, now these aren't really parts, they were lines, because, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, Reich Marshal Führer said, uh, Reich, uh, Reich Kanzler Führer, uh, Hitler said, so-and-so, and I would come in with a German line, then I would do a French line, then I would do uh, Joe Lewis, who was the boxing champion, you know, and uh, uh, these weren't parts, but you had to yes, change your yeah. voice, yeah. And, and it was, as I say, learning your craft. And, and we used the- to get then uh, $2.50 for making a 30-minute recording which was processed and then sold over and over again, a, a series very like the soap operas that you had in Chicago. Uh, of the later. same show? No, of different sorts of shows. Oh, no, mm-hmm. uh, an, organiza- uh, an outfit called McGregor Solly that later became C.P. McGregor's. There was another man working mm-hmm. there at the same time, a blackface comedian uh, by the name of Bob Burns. And he had to write his own show and did it all himself with the music uh, he had not yet invented his famous bazooka. bazooka yeah. uh, but he was paid because he wrote and performed. He was paid $5 a piece. And these are mm-hmm. still owned by, you know, and you sold your, your rights outright yeah. for uh-huh. the $2.50 or $3, as we, the actors did. He sold his rights outright for $5 a side. And these are still <laughs> being played in Australia and New Zealand no and kidding. the far northern reaches of Canada and South Africa. 
uh, I don't know, they must net maybe was... 50, 60 cents a playing, the, <laughs> the owner still, but it's been 35 years. That's really great. That shows the lasting quality of radio. <laughs> or the very modest standards to which it, <laughs> it atta- that it attained. In that quality, then, of course, uh, we were unionized in 37. Mm-hmm. We founded uh, AFRA, which now became AFTRA, uh, with the addition of television. And uh, things became financially a little better. But uh, all in all, it was a most gratifying world because uh, you could play so many things. You could play anything you could sound, you see. Well, you were a master of dialect, so well, you could sound that anything. Well, most of us had to have such uh-huh. facility in order to play several parts. Before the unionization, you must remember that we were not limited. As to after we were unionized, uh, we were limited. You could play two parts in a bit, or then mm-hmm. you could only play one part in a bit. But in those days, the actor with most voices worked most often. And it was not unusual for one actor to play three parts in one scene, talking to himself. Going right back and, and going forth. Going right back right. and forth, mm-hmm. holding a duologue with yourself. Was that so. tough for you? To it was do tough that? for everyone, uh-huh. but uh, it meant eating or not eating. And there was a great facility that we, deliver, we developed. And uh, we were very arrogant about that facility, rather proud of ourselves. Indeed, we thought ourselves, by and large, the, the busy radio actors, and this goes all the way to the end of radio in, mm-hmm. uh, in 53, the, the year that radio died, uh, from my standpoint as an actor, mm-hmm. a national actor. Uh, we were rather uh, on very good terms with ourselves, ourselves uh, satisfied with what we could do. Indeed, I think there were some very good actors among radio actors, actors who unfortunately never extended, when radio died, never did anything else. Uh, perhaps they did not look, uh, which was the big yeah. disadvantage. They did not look as they sounded, you see. Well, I think that leading was, men were not so yeah, personable right. sometimes. It was a disappointment ladies. to the it public. It was a disappointment right. to the public, and uh, then television was taken over by a new breed mm-hmm. uh, that possibly would be too young or held out of radio, and there was a, uh, a reluctance to employ the, the old fat cats who were certainly no fat, not fat <laughs> any longer. Well, let's see, you played on just about every major network comedy show that uh, well that was that after the war because you're a very young man but there were better things before uh, the decline the literary mm-hmm. decline of radio occurred uh, at the time of the second world war when propaganda when the, uh, the mm-hmm. good drama turned to necessarily to propaganda and I did an awful lot of German voices you know in those days uh, and I always uh, satisfy myself by saying, by saying, well, you had to play him as badly as you did because it was expected of uh-huh. you. But I was a member of the Mercury Company for seven With years. Orson With Welles, Orson Welles, right? With Orson Welles, you see, and we did very good things. I worked for Norman Corwin a good deal, and we considered him the finest writer there was, and I think with good reason. Mm-hmm. Didn't Arch Obler give you uh, your first, first major star, radio job? Yes, he was uh-huh. the first one to star me. Mm-hmm. And uh, Obler did awfully good things, you know very distinguished actors uh, that he employed, uh, stars at that time, and I was always there to, uh, to aid or support. And, Did uh, you have a, a part in the uh, that f- great famous War of the Worlds no, program? No, no, no. Mr. Wells did that in New York, uh-huh. and he That's didn't right. pick me up for the Mercury Company until he came to Hollywood to do uh, Citizen Kane. No, he, that was in the in the film. Citizen yes, he Kane. came in, he came right. to California to play to make Citizen Kane. I I had no part in Citizen I, Kane, right. but he then required some additional actors for to fat to uh, fatten up his uh, radio company. You see, ah, because see. he brought with him uh, Everett Sloan, Joe Carton, Agnes Moorhead, mm. Dorothy Cummings, who went back directly to New York. Uh, but he required other people, and I was one of the lucky ones that he auditioned and picked up and carried with him, and. and when you became part of the Mercury Company, that meant you worked every week. 
There was a part yeah. for you. It was a great uh, large part, small part, and it was that uh, sense of camaraderie, that band of brothers, that made it about as happy and uh, satisfying a, an organization as could be imagined. When you looked up and down the ranks every week and saw the splendid actors, as I say, we liked one another very much. Ray Collins, you know, and Erskine Sanford. Uh, you thought, uh, oh, am I part of this wonderful company? And it gave you a great sense of accomplishment and pride. It was radio stock company. Then. Yes, right. yes, yes. Yeah. But then we were not uh-huh. limited to that. We did uh-huh. that only took one or two days a, a week at most. And we often could do something else on the same day. Well, what kind of a rehearsal schedule would you get into if you, for, for let's say, a Mercury Theater was an hour program? As right? I recall, an hour or a half hour, the later ones. The early the ones, big ones were, were an hour, hour right. yes. And they were hour <laughs> ran through. Right. But then later he did one for Lockheed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did one for the uh, I know some South uh, Committee for South American Affairs, and they all governmental mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Subsidi- uh, subsidized with uh, other commercial sponsors uh, in there. But uh, you would for an hour show, you would probably work a day and a half or two days. You would probably get a from the time you got your script. Yes, uh-huh. yes, and that was necessary because it was a big orchestra that had to mm-hmm. be augmented. Uh, frankly, when you became in the later shows, the comedy shows that I did after the war, when comedy became fashionable, uh, at most your schedule would begin sometime about noon, and then you'd do the show about three or five or six o'clock prime for the West Coast. Then you'd have to come back two or three hours later and do it prime for the East Coast. You see. Uh, even after the war, were they doing repeat broadcasts? Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, yes. I would, if my memory serves. Uh, it must have changed about uh, 43, 44, 45, I guess. Right, right yes. after. Yeah, after the sponsors wouldn't consider. They felt that the, the uh, utilization of the facility of recordings, we had no tape then, we put them mm-hmm. on, on platters, would have been infra-dig. It wasn't quite honest to let you hear. You had to hear something fresh. So the two shows were done, in theory, identically. If we could only hear something fresh today. Yes, well, uh, the terrible fear was for the actor that one day you would forget to show up for the second show after you'd already played the well, first they one. often did. Well, not often, not often. Well. It was a terrible fear. It was like a, a vision of hell, you know, mm-hmm. to conceive that. And I don't know anyone who did, but we were always in constant uh-huh. fear that we would miss it. Well, uh about these the comedy shows, I'd like to get into that because a lot of our listeners remember. No, they were the latest, uh, so the, they will be most remembered. The great comedy things that you did. How long did you play Professor Kropotkin on Seven My Friend Seven years. Irma? Seven years. Every week. Every single week. And of course, week. it never changed from when do we? <laughs> I knew that always, I recall about Kropotkin, he would come in about uh, page five or six, uh-huh. and then he would have a return entrance. He'd play about two pages there, and then he'd come back about page. 22 to 24. It was, it was just fixed pattern, you know. Every script was, this, was pretty a, much the same. Words, so that when I reached when we reached that point, if I tell him, listen, I've got a little sustaining show that'll pay me $25 down the hall or across town. I can't be here for the first two readings. I'll make the dress rehearsal. He said, of course, you know. I mean, I'd done the part uh-huh. so often, and yeah. that it was much easier in those days. What was it that Professor Kropotkin used to call Irma? There wasn't there a little. Um, my dear a young man, gimmick. you will have heard that I haven't uh, read those <laughs> scripts in, in 25 years. Uh, his opening always was there would be a knock on the door, yeah. and it would be, it's only me, Professor Kropotkin. Right. Uh, the first time Kropotkin worked, uh, I, was, I did every one from the second show on. In the very first show of the series, the first of seven years of broadcasting mm-hmm. weekly, he was a violinist who spoke only with his violin. And, uh, no, it, no it dialogue? No dialogue at all. Uh-huh. They would talk to him, and he would make answer with his fiddle. It didn't work. So then they thought they'd have to get a, uh, an actor to play some sort of a dialect 
comic part, you know. And they said Kropotkin, and I was hired for it. I did a lot of dialects. Mm-hmm. And I said Kropotkin, all that must, that's a noble Russian name. That's a Knez, you know. Kropotkin is the most distinguished imperial Russian name. So I had a rich Russian accent. And that was the second show. And they said, Conrad, we like it. We like, you know, the way you handle it. We hired you for it. We don't know what the way politics are now. The <laughs> Russians, because they're our good and our, our strong allies. What could you do? We don't want to make him so Russian in case anything happens. So I made him Jewish. And we never changed the name. And he was uh, uh, what they call in the trade a Jew comic thereafter. Oh, that was great. Well, you switched then to uh, a German, a broad German character. Well, I didn't in, switch. Uh, we were doing it Life, Life with, with Luigi. Luigi. It was just across the hall, you see. And one was done the day after. And I'd had that for five years. Gee, was, Schultz was the butcher, wasn't he? Schultz was the butcher. Yeah. Uh, J. Carroll Nash starred in that. Right. And he was in, had an Italian accent. When they first brought it up, I said, Oh, my Lord, this is Carlton Meyer's kindergarten. We have, don't, haven't done that in 40 <laughs> years. There's no point in doing it. But it was, a good, it was a good success. Joe Forte played the Jewish, but each of us had another dialect. Yeah. Ken Peters did the Swede. And uh, 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 did we have an Irishman? We must have. Oh, I uh, think you had just about, about every, everything everyone, in the yeah. class. And that lasted for five years. That was five years, and yeah. that also died in 53. Everything died in 53. Well, it was it? the just end. About, it was, yeah. uh, you know, it was the, the Holocaust that uh, the networks decided it was time to end mm-hmm. that medium because they had uh, invested in television. Well, by 53, you were really at the peak of your radio career, at I least financially. I don't know what it was peak. It was uh, the end. It certainly was uh, very sound financially yeah. uh-huh. and very gratifying. Uh, we did not have, there was no memorization. Mm-hmm. There was none of the drudgery that uh, is necessary to be an actor in, on the stage. Uh, you had to maintain a couple of decent suits because the comedy shows particularly always had audiences. We mm-hmm. needed the laughter. Mm-hmm. The dramatic shows were done in studios without audiences very often. Uh, very often we were anonymous, you know. By the time the end, though, by the last few years, we began to get billing. They would credit the actors. Now that's and what then I the want. public began mm-hmm. to know us, but for mm-hmm. many years... We worked quite anonymously. We were just voices, and the public had no idea. I did not, not even sure that they realized there were human beings making these sounds. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Now, I, I know that on uh, the Judy Canova show, you occasionally played a character uh, by the name of Mr. Hemingway. Well, but your memory is much keener than mine. And they, I played a couple of characters yeah. probably, but with uh, Canova because she was a... Uh, a rural comic, you know. Right. Uh, Mel Blank was on it, uh, Ruby Dandridge, and uh, Sheldon Leonard, who's now a very prominent producer. Mm-hmm. And Joe Kearns, of course, did Lukey. Uh, but uh, I played, had two or three. I had an affected English character and a well, stock Boswell, comic. Boswell, I, 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 out of the all the research, I find You've a name done a lot William Boswell. Did you was remember such a, a name? No, I <laughs> But I know the sort of things. Well, you were on Gildersleeve too, weren't you? No, never played the great Gildersleeve. Never, never played yeah. the great with Hal Perry. No, or later with with, with uh, mm-hmm. Willard Waterman. Never okay. did. That. Someone said you once played Oliver Honeywell on that program. Well, I may have once or twice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we had a show called The Great Gildersleeve that we auditioned years ago that never that in which I was supposed to star, but uh, we never sold. Oh, mm-hmm. Well, you're on Mel Blanc program. Did uh, you do Professor Gildes- Moriarty on Sherlock Holmes? Yes, with uh, Basil Rathbone, Basil Rathbone. And, and Nigel Bruce. He didn't come in very often. I did the show much more often as some other character uh-huh. than Moriarty because Moriarty was a, a rare and villainous pleasure, mm-hmm. so great and enormous that you couldn't use him every week. You know. But you worked regularly parts, on yes. that show. What, uh, what other programs I did were the you mur- I did the murderer with? in the original production of Sorry, Wrong Number. 
that Agnes Moorhead made so famous. Of course, it was her show from beginning to mm-hmm. end, but they had a voice. I played a Dutch dialect, a Holland uh, accent, and mm-hmm. that, I remember. Did it two or three times thereafter. Uh, there was an annual celebration of uh, um, uh, uh, Christmas, uh, you know, the Christmas show that Lionel Barrymore did. A Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol. Scrooge. I did Marley's Ghost uh-huh. for nine consecutive years. It was an annual show, and they made a big to-do about it every year on Christmas Eve. We know so, very well. That was uh, it's one of my favorite programs of all time. Are there still recordings? There is a, a, oh, an sure. album that Mr. Barrymore made. Right. Which was not up to the standard of the annual show for no. some reason. They didn't spend enough money. But you are on it, I think. Aren't well, you? Yes. I'm also yeah. associated with lesser shows. It was <laughs> the most successful ones, you know. I mean, well, we felt disappointed. It wasn't quite as stylish as the uh, annual show. We did couldn't. Uh-huh. They didn't afford the big orchestra or anything. Yeah, that's right. Well, and they bridged each. each and I was uh, I was uh, uh, on the Barry on the Lionel Barrymore show for some years on alternate weeks, as. Uh, I've forgotten that You mean name. the mayor of the town? Yes, mayor uh-huh. of the town. I was uh, Marilli's boyfriend. I was Aggie's boyfriend. Uh, now, an was affected that, blowhard. Was that with, with credit that or not? With credit, with I'm credit. sure. Uh-huh. That was late in the, in the uh-huh. in the radio days. And I did it for several years on alternate weeks. There were two writers. One writer used me and the other one didn't. <laughs> was he prejudiced? One was my friend. I don't think he prejudiced. No, he just uh, felt that there was a character uh-huh. the other man had developed. The other man wrote best uh-huh. and... Uh, a writer took two weeks to write the show, and uh, they alternated. Yeah. It was a weekly show. You did a show with John Wayne a long time ago. Three Series Sheets, sheets to, the to the Wind. Wind. My Lord, you've done a lot of research. Now, what was that, that show That was a recorded about? show uh-huh. and sold, syndicated. It had no definite sponsor, you know. It must have been about 30 minutes long. I can't tell you. Three Sheets to the Wind. It cost me a certain amount of adventure and drinking, and uh-huh. uh, uh, a wonderful man directed it. Uh, a very prominent motion picture director who had not done much uh, uh, radio directing and who was a sailor. There, it was a yachting story, something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It maybe ran 13 weeks and died. It was not a, uh, not long lived. Was that in the late 30s at that time, or was uh, it in maybe the 40? early 40s? Very early 40s. Uh-huh. I you did some radio directing. Oh yes, for a while. Uh, uh, stars several over years. Hollywood. You directed stars yes. over Hollywood. Uh, there was television was beginning to come in, uh-huh. and. Uh, <laughs> uh, this agent uh, thought that I talked well. There was very little direction uh-huh. to be done, you understand. Uh, Armistar, uh, what was it? Uh, a very big agency. It owned a lot of shows. Uh, they would contract prominent motion picture stars. And in the very small print, there would be they'd get a certain amount of money for a block of three shows that they would do mm-hmm. over the course of a year. And the Stars Over Hollywood, which was an early Saturday morning show, mm-hmm. was the least of these. And they only wanted someone who was well-known. And most of these people I had supported. And I was a well-known radio actor. And I knew them. And we were on a first-name basis. And they used me as kind of a front. What can you tell uh, an actor who comes in? And they used to pay them off very modestly because their main salary came from the bigger shows that they contracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus a can of tin meat, a case of tin meat they gave them because it was Armistar, Armistar yeah. or a ham yeah. or something. And so my function was only, it was very easy to be a radio director at this point because you had your tremendous source of performers and you only had to cast the parts according mm-hmm. to uh, what you knew each actor could do, you know. Was that the extent of your radio directing, or did you oh, do I other things? Like that? Oh, well, I, I didn't do that exclusively. That uh-huh. took uh, Friday night late and Saturday morning, uh-huh. and I was free to continue as a radio actor. Uh-huh. I functioned as a radio actor right. at the same time, yeah. but I had that questionable distinction of also being a radio director for three years. 
Now, along about the time when you first, uh, well, you were had been involved in radio for uh, several years, and uh, I guess it was 1938 when you made your first motion I picture. I cannot say how flattered and flabbergasted I am that you would have done this. You're much my research. hero. You're my hero. Really, you should have <laughs> seem more sensible than that. You should have more worthy <laughs> idols than. The, no, come on now. You did dramatic than school. Than to kneel at my in, feet of clay. In 1938. That was 1938. That was the first picture I done. So you see, I had been a radio actor since. Uh, uh, virtually December or November of 35. I mm-hmm. came out of California in September. So I'd been an actor for a couple of years before I got that small part in a picture. And was I continued it, to do small parts for a long time. Was it tough to get a uh, movie job at that time or easy? Well, because the, of your the, radio no, the business was burgeoning, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, radio actors, I think, were in some disfavor. Uh, motion picture producers didn't know they existed, actually. Radio was looked down upon. It was a bastard industry. Uh, it was not until about that time, well, about 35, 36, that it became fashionable or even permissible for motion picture stars to appear on radio. Radio had its own group of pariahs who performed vocally, but they felt that it was beneath the dignity of an established star to appear on, a motion picture star to appear on radio, and then someone's nephew got the idea, let's bring him into the, uh, there was not a decline in motion picture sales, the first-run pictures I think used to cost about 75 cents a ticket in those mm-hmm. days, that was the first run, and second runs were 40 and 25 cents or 15 or whatever they went to. Uh, let's bring them into the living room, your living room. So suddenly, motion picture actors began to be the big stars in Hollywood. Well, there was no industry in Hollywood. The industry at that time was San Francisco. So within a few months, the tremendous industry in San Francisco declined, and all the radio actors came down to Los Angeles. However, I had been, and several others, many others some years before, had been holding forth in their quiet, anonymous, uh, almost invisible way of being radio actors. Well, these motion picture stars required radio actors about them to support them, people who thoroughly knew the business and were able to play all these other parts. And so everything opened up for us marvelously. Then in 37, under, because we had, to make the best of it, questionable working conditions, Screen Actors Guild, when we said we wanted to go on, that we wanted to get a better wage, something more than the 50 mm-hmm. cents a night, the mm-hmm. 350 and the 250, that had nurtured us and maintained us and enabled us to learn our craft, then Screen Actors Guild said, yes, if you go out, we'll stand by you. We'll go out too. Otherwise, they could have filled it up with persons who had not been doing any radio work at all, and they permitted us to organize. And from that time on, the industry was uh, thriving and and remunerative for all of us who had prepared ourselves by working for nothing for years before. Oh, that's that's great. You know, uh, in the in the uh, late 30s and the early 40s, you were, uh, as a character actor, you were probably a Hollywood's resident Nazi, weren't you? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, I every, every, no, that was actually <laughs> small. But that's a great many things in pictures, I did. Right, that's what I mean. You see, I was, uh, radio was my primary uh, uh, business. Most mm-hmm. of my living came. However because of the German name and the fact that I did German dialects and I was young and slender enough to wear the uniform with some effect, uh, they hired me. I have photographs of myself in every possible German uniform of that, SSSR, Wehrmacht, Luftwaffe, everything, Partei uniform. And so then I began to get, although my parts were small, I began to get even featured spots. Very of the parts were small because I had enough prestige and I had enough... Protection from my radio business, 
to make myself slightly unavailable and pictures like that, mm -hmm. so, uh, you know. Well, they uh, often uh, would work. Uh, they'd work to around your me. Schedule, I'd say, right? well, I could, yeah. it's a very small part. You've only got two days. When aren't you working? And I said, well, next week I have Wednesday and Thursday. You know, and so I'd go out and do a picture, and it was uh, fine for me. But that's, I never did many pictures, never got very good parts. Uh, you were in, that, I think, three of the Falcon movies, weren't you? A couple of them, anyway. Yeah. George yeah. Sa no, George Saunders' brother. Uh, Tom Conway. Tom Conway, yeah. that's right. I love the one title. Irving Reese was the The Gay was Falcon. The Gay yeah. Falcon. You think that we could produce a film like that today? Well, I want I, not only that, but they'd really follow through with the story. <laughs> in those days, it was only the title that was uh, provocative. <laughs> you know. uh, you, you were I played in a the... hotel clerk in one, I saw because I have an old still. Uh, what I, oh, and I did a murder in another in which I died in a... Uh, a bee smoke cemetery, I remember. They shoot me in a cemetery. That's a good spot to die. Yes. <laughs> you were in a, uh, a Maisie film. And you did, didn't you? Did, I, know, I know you did. You may not remember you did, but I know you were on a couple of the Maisie radio programs, The Adventures oh, of Maisie. Oh, lots of that was uh, and Southern. Right. Oh, I did Southern. lots of those. And then we had a show called Blondie, too. And I did mm. a, that was a good big part, and I got some little celebration for that, Blondie's Blessed Event. It was a, what we called B pictures. They were dreadful yeah. movies. And there was a picture, a, a newspaper in New York that gave me a tabloid picture, a paper called PM. Not many people remember uh. it. And uh, they gave me a full page. They reproduced a still, said picture stealer caught red-handed. I began to get <laughs> do small parts, but they were very often good parts. Well, you, and, you were uh, the voice of Mr. Darling and Captain Hook in Disney's oh, well, that was Peter later. Pan. That was, that was in the, in 52 the, uh, or 52, 53. Yeah. Uh, in, uh, that was a cartoon. Well, I did right. done cartoons all along, voiceover. Mm -hmm. Were you doing the, the seven-minute cartoons uh, for well, the Lots studios? of cartoons yeah. for studios, the things that they'd show in motion yeah. picture theaters, you know, as a, as a divertisement between the, the A picture right. and the B picture. Right. They don't make cartoons like they, they used to make They don't make cartoons either. anymore. Yeah. Although there is, now there are some great artists in cartooning far beyond. Mm. I work for uh, uh, Jay Ward, and I feel that Jay Ward produces mm. the finest stuff. Uh, well, Jay Ward was does, the fellow who... a man who, that does uh, now uh, the Bullwinkle Show, or do, mm -hmm. do, you know, their old right. ones now. And I've done uh, Snively Whiplash on uh, Dudley Do-Right Show, and I do Uncle Waldo on Hoppity Hooper. Now, in, in theory, they're for kids, but if you listen to them, the dialogue, I know we enjoy doing them because they're very witty. Oh, sure. And didn't the style you, of cartooning has changed. Didn't you do a show that was, was it produced by Jay Ward, this Fractured Flickers? Fractures, that's right, a series. What uh, did you think of that show? I enjoyed it very much, and it was very well received. College people liked uh -huh. it very much. When I go to colleges, the kids like it. It uh, was impractical, uh, uh, too expensive to produce. They had to look at so much old footage uh -huh. in order to get uh, a 30-minute show. You know, you'd spend two days in the in the uh, uh, the viewing room, say, and you'd stop the camera and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, back in reel two, there are a couple of frames that I could tie into this because I've got a gag, you know. But it meant yeah. going back and cutting, yeah. and the editing is just more than could be afforded. Well, how long did that thing run? Was there 13 there shows 13 or 13 shows more? or 26 shows or something, 13. And it's being re-shown in California, yeah. and, you know, it's a timeless thing now. Yeah. Well, people are very uh, nostalgic these really? days. Oh, sure. Uh, I want to ask about the Peter Pan thing. Didn't you, uh, in addition to doing the voice for Captain Hook, have something to do with action. the the actions I for the, the animators? And you see, Disney alone is the only studio large enough to afford live action. Mm -hmm. Live action is an absolute movie made under very hot lights, very bright lights, 
some strange, I think it's 25 millimeter or something, strange uh, film size. And you wear costume and you have elementary sets, just the rudiments of the mm-hmm. set, and you perform. Now, when you do voiceover in a picture, as I often used to do, I was employed to dub, for instance, they'd get a very interesting looking character man and he could speak English. And then I'd dub whatever he would say in this heavy dialect into a, a thinner dialect. Mm-hmm. You then speak your lines coincident with the, his, the actor's labial action on the screen. You put the sound to the picture. But with Disney's cartoons, since the sound is the primary and they're, they're going to, their picture will be drawn, will be cartooned, you make the sound first. You make your soundtrack. And then, uh, of course, they usually do not hire the same actor to do the physical action. Invariably, they, always hire, they usually hire dancers. Mm-hmm. Too, mm-hmm. too, because they are more subtle and their pantomime is more developed than the average actor. But in this case, they thought that I would do, and they hired me, and it took over two and a half years and fits and starts to complete. And in that way, I enacted the role physically, coincident with the soundtrack that was always played behind me. You see? How interesting. Well, it was yeah. an interesting thing, and we did it over, as I've worked on that, over two and a half years, I say. Well, not uh, consistently, but they say, listen, uh, next week, can you give me two days? Or mm-hmm. next week we've got four days. Or next month, you've got to give me two full weeks. We've got a lot of series to, to shoot. And then a picture would be made where my physical action would be coincident with the sound that was on the track. But what a beautiful job. And the job cartoonist then, mm-hmm. this picture was developed, and they said, now wait a minute, when he says that, what, is, what happens with the plume on his hat? What's he do with his hand? How about his eyebrow? And they could stop action with this thing, blow them up. They're common in the, in the animator's room. 18 by 25 inches, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And they could see exactly at what point in the picture. So that's why Disney's stuff was so precise and so natural. Amazing. It's amazing. Uh, it was the only other people that can thing. do that are the governmentally sustained Eastern European cartoons. You sometimes see them uh, bought. I did some translating, uh, a voiceover for translated mm-hmm. Polish and Russian things. And they are marvelously done but they are sustained by the government, and you even have highlights on buttons in the cartoons, shining and teeth-breaking. That's all because they have made an absolute and complete movie that I believe in many instances they've just traced into cartooning. Let's, let's slip back just a little bit from Disney to a movie that you, you were and weren't in as Professor Kropotkin in oh. My Friend Irma. Tell us about that. Well, I had done it for seven years, you know, mm-hmm. the part. And when it uh, came, they wanted to make a picture of it. It was the first picture that Jerry, uh, that, uh, Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin did together. They introduced them into the character. Mm-hmm. They were two young, brash young comics, and they were looking for a vehicle, and this radio show was so popular, but now radio was dying. It was close to the end. See, I don't remember what year, but it could have been more, a year or so short. 49, the, the movie was it 49? Well, it was, was four years before. Anyway, uh, uh, the same man produced it, and they called me and said, Conrad, you want to do Kropotkin? It's your part. You've done it enough four or five years and uh, I assured him that as eager as I was to become a famous movie star that I was quite an unsuitable I was in my late 20s or early 30s no I guess what, what did you say 49 mm-hmm. I can tell you exactly uh, in uh, 47 I would have been 30 so I was 32 but there was an old man of about 75 and I said no it's ridiculous not for me and I'm busy elsewhere and I thank you and if you get a nice for a younger man, I'd be happy to play it, but there wasn't. So they got a marvelous actor, and they very wisely got Felix Bressart, splendid uh, European actor, to play the part, and he was wonderful in it. But he died halfway during the shooting. And they said, now we're in trouble. 
So I said, all right, put the makeup on me and I'll play the part. And I did play it. And I played it as I thought, with a face much too young for the part. They had to use me just either slightly out of focus or a little far back. But the best portions of that entire performance are the long shots, which were originally done by Bressart. So there was one character in this movie that was played by two actors. I was much taller than Bressart anyway. But we both had big noses and were thin, and uh, they edited it so that perhaps the uh, average viewer didn't recognize that there were two actors playing the part. But there you were, your screen achievement as Professor Kropotkin. I've often done things I shouldn't do. That was certainly one of them. The the film which you you have said was the highlight of your motion picture career as far as uh, being an artistic success was a, a great picture in 1953 called The 5,000 Five Fingers. 5,000 Fingers of Dr. Th- my mother saw it, <laughs> and I don't think anyone else. Uh, my kids have seen it at college because it's considered a classic now, but at it its is. time, it was one of the two great money losers of all time. You see, it was a great debacle. It was a but you... Had the title. I role. had the title role. It was the big, the biggest part I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Maybe the big, biggest, the best part I ever will get. Uh, if it had come out differently, it would have changed my life, no doubt. But it was such a, it became such a, a stock joke. It would stop conversation in any cocktail party in Hollywood thereafter. That uh, it was very hard. Almost, uh, I don't know that uh, they blame me personally for the debacle because the other actors were involved. But uh, we were all hurt bad. It did very well in London and uh, Berlin, Paris, and Tokyo. But in those days, our foreign market didn't pay. I don't think uh, Mm -hmm. it ever paid for its print money back. The original film that went through the camera was never paid by... uh, It was partly politics and partly because it was a fantasy, and Americans weren't prepared for anything. Peter Lynn Hayes and Mary Healy were That's right, and they had a tough time working after that in pictures, too. I did work for a long time there. The only one that survived without too many scars was Tommy Reddick, and he became the boy, the first boy with the Lassie show, and he's outgrown the, his child parts now and doesn't perform any longer. Well, what was your most recent film? I you can't did, remember. You did uh, remember. Robin and the Seven Hoods in 65, oh, well, well, five years ago, six years uh, how ago. How about the Patsy with Jerry Lewis? That's, that's more recent, isn't it? That was 64. That was before really? that. Well, I can't remember. I did did, a, was that 60, maybe 66 or something? But uh-huh. They were minor and unimportant, but then already pictures were declining. And by that time, I was primarily concerned in the work I'm doing now. I'm on the stage. So the last uh, 12, 14 years, I'm on the stage 200 nights a year, you know, at least. 200 nights a at year? At least. Uh, eight or ten really? months a year, if I'm lucky, and I have been. Well, anyone who comes to see you when you're on the stage is very lucky. Well, on, the, they, on the good nights they, sometimes. <laughs> no. uh, if they have nothing else to do. But that is what I've been doing. It, it just I it indicates, and I'm very happy and grateful for the chance to be resilient, that I've had three or four careers shot out from under me, and I'm still functioning. Mm-hmm. After 35 years, I've been working almost every week somewhere doing something. Mm-hmm. Well, you're involved regularly, if not every week, on something on television. You're, I suppose, uh, repeats uh, or something. Uncle Tunus, oh, but I do voiceovers uh, and Thomas, cartoons, sure. you don't know, and I do uh, you know, talks and lectures and, and uh, all sorts. I, I have several strings to my bow, and it's almost necessary. Do you think that uh, a good dramatic series produced today could survive on radio? I wouldn't think so, no. Where would you find your audience? You and your, f- your family? Well, uh, the, I the think American public has a I don't know. That. I wonder if it could. It, uh, if the opportunity arose, the radios, would now you I remember be a my, part of it? My little girl asked me some years ago, what did you do before you uh, uh, 
became an actor. I said, well, I was always an actor when I was very young. I was a radio actor. Did you mean that thing in the automobile? <laughs> well, no, that concept uh -huh. of radio is only if you can hear it over the whir of the automobile motor, the engine. But if a program were being produced like that, would you like to be a part oh, of it? Oh, very much, very much. You liked radio. Yes, very you enjoyed much. It. Uh, yeah. We thought us. I felt very secure in that. I felt I knew my craft. You did. You did. We'd like to thank you for being part of our Those Were the thank Days you, show Chuck. today. Hans Conried, we uh, can't say how much it's been our well, pleasure. I can't tell to you again how flattered you. I am that anyone looked all this nonsense. I don't know where you <laughs> found the material. Most of it I forgot. <laughs> I'd like to invite our listeners to head out to the Pheasant Run Playhouse in St. Charles to see Norman Is That You? Great comedy. Thanks. A good comedy and a good star. Hans Conried, our guest today. Thank you very thank much, you Hans, very much, for Jim. being with us. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to another episode of the Jack Benny Show from the 1942-1943 season. This, of course, is our year of replacements we've talked about before, that we've had a lot of different uh, actors that have been replaced on the various shows. We, had, uh, we still have Phil Harris out. He's in the Merchant Marines, and he'll be back next week to the Jack Benny show in the 1943 season. Uh, we lost uh, Jimmy Durante for a while. He was sick. Uh, no, I think he was having an operation. Anyway, um, he was out, and they had a bunch of rotating folks fill in for him. Red Skelton, Bob Hope, Frank Morgan, somebody else, anyway. Uh... And now, of course, we have the big, biggest replacement of all. We have Jack out. And Jack uh, has pneumonia. They'll talk about it as being a cold this week. And he'll be out for the next, what, five or six weeks, something like that. And I don't know if they were first going to replace him with revolving uh, guest stars um, like uh, Jimmy Durante, did, but uh, anyway, this first week it's uh, George and Gracie come in. George Burns and Gracie Allen were uh, two close, close friends of Jack's. Uh, George Burns is his best friend, and they come in, take over the show. They talk some about um, Gracie's Carnegie Hall performance, and I posted before this the two episodes uh from uh, this week and the previous week of the Burns and Allen show where they're dealing with the whole Car Har uh, Carnegie Hall <laughs> appearance. And um, so that'll be kind of fun for you to listen to as well as listen to this episode. It's always interesting, I think, when George and Gracie take over, the episode becomes almost like a Burns and Allen show more than a um, Jack Benny show featuring Burns and Allen. It just... Uh, has a real different feel to it. Uh, next week, of course, Orson Welles will be taking over for Jack, and he'll continue to take over for Jack for weeks to come. And uh, that's some of the, the, the most interesting episodes of the whole Jack Benny series. So make sure you tune in for that. The Grape Nuts Flakes program with Rochester, Dennis Day, Bill Goodwin, Paul Whiteman and his orchestra, and yours truly, Don Wilson. And appearing for Jack Benny, who's confined with a cold... We have Jack's personal friends, George Burns and Gracie Allen. 
Well, ladies, now that shoes are being rationed, you won't want to waste any shoe leather tracking down your week's food order. So though I don't say run, I do say walk to your nearest grocer's for a big 12-ounce economy-sized package of delicious, toasty brown grape nuts flakes. Your grocer has plenty of grape nuts flakes, for whole grain cereals are abundant and thrifty, and they are not rationed. And government nutrition experts say we should eat more of them. Eat them oftener. You see, grape nuts flakes in your diet help you to make up for other food shortages because they provide many nutritional essentials, including protective minerals and vitamins. And you get more flavor galore. Malty-rich goodness plus toasty brown texture in each luscious spoonful. So take a shortcut to thriftier, grand-tasting, nourishing breakfast by asking your grocer for Grape Nuts Flakes. Ladies and gentlemen, when Jack Benny found that he couldn't do his broadcast tonight, he told me to call on his good friends George Burns and Gracie Allen and ask them to pinch hit for him. So I started for the Burns Hotel to tell them about Jack's problem, never dreaming that another problem was already brewing in the domestic life of George and Gracie. Gracie, will you please get away from that piano? We've been in New York a week now, and that's all I've heard. But, George, March 16th is my concert with Paul Whiteman in Carnegie Hall. If I don't practice, I may lose all the magic in my finger. <laughs> Look, don't you realize that you're driving everybody nuts with this idea? In the past week, Paul Whiteman has lost 20 pounds. Oh, I don't think he really lost them, dear. I think they just slipped down a little. <laughs> Gracie, why don't you give up the concert idea and, and, and try to take an interest in something else? Oh, I've been busy, George. I spent a whole day showing Herman the sights of the city. That's great. Sightseeing with a silly duck. Well, he enjoyed every minute of it, especially at City Hall when I took him in to see Mayor LaGuardia. Gracie, you shouldn't take a duck in to see LaGuardia. Well, I simply had to, George. I knew he'd never get another chance to meet a mayor that he could stand beside and look right in the eye. <laughs> Well, uh, I never thought of that. Well, you have to excuse me now, George. I have to go work on the gown I'm designing to wear at my concert. Now, Gracie, that's... Oh, it's con a wonderful gown, dear. I, I decided it should be a musical creation. White satin with a very wide skirt. What's musical about that? Well, that's the beauty of it, dear. No one will realize how clever I am until I sit down and lean back. And then what happens? Well, I've got an accordion in the bustle. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, I'll be back in a minute, dear. I wonder how it feels to be married to a woman who makes sense. <laughs> oh, well, I'll never know. Come in. Hello, George. Well, I'll be down. Don Wilson. Come on in, Don. How's Jack? Well, that's why I'm here, George. Jack has a bad cold. Really? Well, I'm sorry to hear it. Uh, he'd like me to ask you a favor, George. For sure. Anything at all. Well, Jack won't be able to work tonight, so he wants you and Gracie to take over his show. Now, can you do it? Well, sure, Don. We'll be happy to do anything for Jack. Naturally, he knows that your time is valuable, and he doesn't expect you to do it for nothing. Oh, now, Don. He wants me to tell you that while he's lying in bed, he'll knit you a muffler. <laughs> Uh, 
Ah, good old Jack. Now, all you have to do is buy the knitting needles and four balls of yarn. Isn't, uh, isn't four balls of yarn a lot for a muffler? Oh, Jack wants one, too. Oh, well, that's nice. That's nice. Gee, I've always envied Jack getting all those laughs. And here's my chance to kill all the people just by saying, hmm, or, uh, yipe. <laughs> and then he always gets a scream when he says, I do not marry and shut up. Yeah, that Benny does say the funniest thing. Isn't he thing? a scream? Yes, he's a real wit. Yes. Did you... Why, Paul Whiteman, I'm glad you dropped in. No, no, Gracie, I'm Don Wilson. Don't you remember? Oh, of course, Don. How silly of me. I should have looked at your face first. <laughs> uh, Gracie, Don has got some news for us. Yes, Gracie. You see, Jack Benny is sick in bed, and he oh, wants sick you... sick in bed? Oh, my goodness. I must send him a job, my homemade crab apple jelly, right away. Well, now, Oh, Gracie, he'll I... love it. He'll love it. I used only the very best apples and the very best crabs. <laughs> well, I, I don't think Jack... I sent some of it to my sister Bessie when she had her operation. Of course, I can't tell you about Bessie's operation. Well, good. You... It was done by an army surgeon, and naturally, that makes it a military secret. Gracie, Don wants us to do Jack Benny's program tonight. Oh, 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 I'm sorry, George, but I couldn't think of going on Jack's program. You what? Well, isn't that a comedy program? Oh, yes. And don't people laugh at it? Well, sure. Well, George, what would my public think? I'm a concert artist. <laughs> What's she talking about, George? Well, Gracie thinks she's going to play the piano at Paul Whiteman's concert in Carnegie Hall. Yes, would you like to hear the number I'm going to play, Don? Here it is. And that's what you're going to play at Carnegie Hall? Well, there's no sense in playing something I don't know. <laughs> Gracie, forget this foolishness. We've got to do Jack's program tonight. Well, I'm awfully sorry, but I, I couldn't accept an offer to appear on the radio. Except on a musical program, of course, such as Dear Artie has. Oh, you mean Artie Shaw? Oh, my goodness, no. Artie Toscanini. <laughs> Gracie, have you gone out of your mind? We can't let Jack Benny down. Well, George, I have my career to think of. No great musician can afford to be laughed at. Did Mendelssohn do it? Did Mendel's daughter do it? Did Mendel himself do it? <laughs> no, that was a great act, too. The musical Mendel's. They were next to closing at the Jefferson. Gracie, now you mustn't think only of yourself. Think of George. He's very anxious to do Jack Benny's show. Well, I don't know why George doesn't know a soul in St. Joe. Gracie, will you stop being so stubborn? Well, George, I just can't risk my concert career. There's the world of music, and then there's the world of comedy. You can't mix the two. You know what I always say? East is east, and west is west, and north is north, and south is south, and east is east, and... Well, well I guess that covers it. Yes, yes. That even overlaps a little bit. Yes. <laughs> This is Paul Whiteman, and here's one of America's most popular singers with one of America's most popular songs, Dennis Day, singing, There Are Such Things. Oh, 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 oh,
someone to whisper, darling, you're my guiding star, not caring what you own, but just what you are, a peaceful You've just got to listen to reason. The Benny program goes on the air in an hour. I'm sorry, George. But, Gracie, in a little while, millions of people are going to tune into our program. And what are they going to hear? 30 minutes of silence. Well, what's the difference if one week the program isn't quite as lively as usual? <laughs> Look, Gracie, don't you understand? One of our dearest friends is in a spot and he needs someone to go on his program. Oh, I wish we were in California. The Beverly Hills Uplift Society All-Girls Symphony Orchestra would be glad to do the program. That silly club of yours. Nobody is interested in those hens. George Burns, that's no way to talk about your wife and your wife's friends. Well, I uh, didn't mean you, sweetheart. Well, it's no way to talk about those other hens either. <laughs> All right. I'm going inside and practice an etude. Who knows? If it goes well tomorrow, I might try a B-tude. Hmm. Well, this is fine. You said it. Come in. George, George, listen, I hear you're going to do the Jack Benny show tonight. Well, uh, Well, boy, oh boy, I can't wait to read those commercials, George. Listen, that fat boy they've got announcing on that show is strictly from hunger. Bill, uh, uh, uh... Listen, uh, George, Benny only keeps keeps him on because he can laugh. Bill, uh, say hello to Don Wilson. Oh, hello, Mr. Wilson. You've heard that fat boy on the Benny... (laughs) Don Wilson? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) hello, Don. (laughs) So I'm known to you as Fat Boy, huh, Goodwin? Oh, well, now, don't get sore, Don. I'm always making up nicknames for people. They never fit. (laughs) Well, I don't care about that, but uh, what was that about my announcing? Oh, nothing, Don, nothing at all. I I think you're great. As a matter of fact, Don, I'd like to ask you a favor. You see, I thought maybe you could mention my product on the show tonight. You see, I sell... I'm not interested in what you sell. Well, but, Don, it's purer than the... I'm sorry, but there's no place that I can mention it. No soap, huh? (laughs) No soap. I talk about grape nuts flakes, and grape nuts flakes happen to be America's fastest-growing breakfast cereal. Yes, sir, grape nuts flakes are my idea of the most tempting, appetizing, toasty brown breakfast dish that was ever put before a hungry family. Well, uh, Don, after the family finishes eating that tempting, delicious, toasty brown cereal, they have to wash the dishes now, don't they? Why, certainly. Well, what do they use to wash the dishes? Water, of course. Believe me, Bill, once you taste those... Don, Don, old man, please, what do they put 
in the water. The dish. <laughs> Believe me, Bill, once you taste grape nuts flakes with their malty, rich, sweet as a nut flavor, their crisply toasted goodness, you'll know why I'm so enthusiastic. And what's more important, grape nuts flakes are a whole grain cereal, chuck full of all-around nourishment. And Bill... You better make a date for tomorrow's breakfast with Grape Nuts Flakes. Well, all right, Don. Right after I've had my shower with... Grape Nuts Flakes. <laughs> okay, you win. So long, fat boy. <laughs> well, Don, we're, uh, we're right back where we started. George, now, why don't you go in and talk with your wife? Put your foot down. You're darn right I will. I'll show her who's the boss. That a boy. Gracie. What do you want? Well, sweetheart. Uh, you know that beautiful fur coat you saw in Bergdorf Goodman's? You mean the one you said was too expensive for me? Uh-huh. Well, I've got a little surprise for you. If you do the program tonight, that coat will be in your closet in the morning. Well, if it isn't, we were robbed. <laughs> Fine. Please, Gracie. Now, now we'll... I'm sorry, boys. You'll have to excuse me now. I've got to dip some spaghetti in ink. You got to what? I've got to dip some spaghetti in ink. That's what it's, I thought it's you to said. To fool our little dolly duck. You see, the hotel won't send up any worms. So you got to dip spaghetti yes. in ink. Come on, Don. Let's get out of here. Oh, come on, Herman. Dinner is almost ready. Ah, <laughs> oh, here's Mama's little precious ducky. You know, Herman, your daddy George is mad at me. <laughs> but Herman, dear, we mustn't be too annoyed with him. He has a kind heart. <laughs> oh, now, that's not fair, baby. He just doesn't realize that it's more important to capture a beautiful melody that comes from a soul than it is to get a big laugh that comes from... Well, never mind. We'll, uh, we'll show them when we get to Carnegie Hall. <laughs> Carnegie Hall? Well, that's where your mama's going to play her concert. Oh, I can see it now, Herman. It's time for my entrance. There's a tremendous fanfare of trumpets. <laughs> oh, and then, then I play my piece. I become the sensation of New York. Reporters will flock around me. I'll be the guest of honor at dozens of banquets. Oh, I probably won't be home for days. <gasps> oh, oh, Mama didn't mean to make you cry. She'll always find time to be with her darling little baby. <laughs> and your daddy George will be so proud of me. Oh, come in. I do, Miss Burns. I'm Rochester. Chester, I suppose you're looking for Mr. Wilson. That's right, ma'am. I've been talking to Mr. Benny and he... <laughs> My, my, poultry. <laughs> oh, Rochester, that, that's my little son, Herman. Uh, son? Well, yes. Don't you think he looks like his daddy? Don't believe I ever met the bird. <laughs> oh, of course you have. I'm married to him. You mean Mr. Burns is that duck's papa? Uh-huh. Oh, come now. <laughs> uh, 
George was here, too. You'd notice the resemblance if you saw them both walking. <laughs> anyway, I think you two ought to be great friends. Herman, shake hands with Rochester. How do, Mr. Herman? Mm. I've held many a drumstick, but that's the first one that ever withdrew voluntarily. <laughs> I know, I know he's dying to have a conversation with you. Go on, say something to him. Is this practical? <laughs> oh, sure, go on. Okay. Uh, Mr. Herman, what are you going to be doing Meatless Tuesday? <laughs> oh, Rochester, he's busy on Tuesday. He always goes to Central Park. Would you like to take him for a walk in the park sometime? You mean you'd trust me alone with that fat little rascal? Oh, certainly. He wouldn't hurt you. The vice versa don't trouble you none. Oh, no. Well, Rochester, uh, maybe you're silly to wait for Mr. Wilson. I'm not going on Mr. Benny's program anyhow. Uh-oh. Oh, yes, the piano is my whole life now. Uh, do you play the piano, Rochester? No, ma'am. I ain't familiar with Irish when they come in large groups. Oh. Well, goodbye, Rochester. I must get back to my art. From now on, I intend to woo the muses. Uh, Terpstickery, Calliope, Schenectady.
Think we ought to try it again? No, no, George. I've got a headache. So have I, but I wish I could get it to go on Jack's program. Come in. Oh, hello, Dennis. Gee, Mr. Wilson, you're going to catch it. Mr. Benny just called, and he's all excited because he hasn't heard from you. Now, Dennis, there's nothing to worry about. But I don't want Mr. Benny to get high blood pressure with my blood. <laughs> now, just pull yourself together and say hello to George Burns. He's taking Jack's place tonight. Hello, Dennis. How are you? <laughs> what's, uh, what's funny? <laughs> Gee, you're a scream, Mr. Burns. What's this, anyway? Aren't you taking Mr. Benny's place tonight? Well, what of it? I was afraid if I didn't laugh, you'd twist my arm like Mr. Benny does. <laughs> Say, George, George, maybe Dennis can persuade Gracie to go on the show. Dennis? Sure, believe it or not, the little dope seems to have a way with women. Gee, have I? All right, go in and talk to Gracie. We'll find out. Yes, sir. Hello, Miss Allen. Oh, hello, Dennis. Yes, ma'am. I'm supposed to ask you to be on Mr. Benny's program tonight. Well, I won't do it. I don't blame you, Miss Allen. Mr. Benny says some terrible things about your brother, Fred. Oh, no. Fred's not my brother, Dennis. And, and please don't call me Miss Allen. I've been Mrs. Burns since one day years ago when a tall, handsome, charming man came along and pronounced George and me man and wife. <laughs> But, Mrs. Burns, if you have nothing against Mr. Benny personally, why won't you go on his program? Well, I simply can't do it, Dennis. You see, I'm an intellectual, and Jack Benny is... is... well, he... Isn't he, though? <laughs> well, I'm glad you see my point. You must understand that we intellectuals care only for the finer things in life. You know, Shakespeare and Beethoven and Walter Pigeon. <laughs> Gee, I've always wanted to meet an intellectual, Mrs. Burns. Well, how do? How do? <laughs> I'll bet you read lots of books, huh? Oh, yes, Dennis. A, a day never goes by that I don't pick up a book to dust it, if nothing else. You know something? I'm crazy about books, too. Oh, really? Do you like little women? Oh, sure, but I like books even better. <laughs> oh, well, so do I. And, Dennis, don't you just adore poetry? Yeah. Oh, I, I know most of Longfellow by heart. Uh, can you ever forget the opening lines of Hiawatha? Yeah. Me too. <laughs> you know what, Dennis? You're the first person I've ever met who's my intellectual equal. I guess there aren't many of us. <laughs> Dennis, believe me, you are just being wasted on the Jack Benny program. Yeah, wasted. Imagine you singing. Yeah, singing. Why, you should be reading poetry. Yeah, poetry. I'm crazy about poems. Yeah, crazy. <laughs> I've always dreamed that someday I'd get up on Mr. Benny's program and recite If. If he'd let you? Oh, no, If by Kipling. Oh. Oh, that's one of my favorites. How does it go? I'll recite it for you. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster... Oh, 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 if... Stop, stop. Don't go on. It's too beautiful. <laughs> Gee, I'm sorry. I should have warned you that I was pretty heavenly. Oh, Dennis, we must do... Oh, come in. Why, Tootsie Sagwell, hello, Tootsie. Oh, Gracie, I thought you were practicing, so I... 
Oh, does he belong to anybody? <laughs> well, not yet, Tootsie. Dennis, I want you to meet my girlfriend, Tootsie Sagwell. Tootsie, Dennis Day. Oh, my, what a gorgeous hunk of child. <laughs> uh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Miss Sagwell. Say, haven't I seen you someplace before? Oh, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, Tootsie is as cultured as we are, Dennis. And uh, she, she has a lovely singing voice. Oh, I haven't. I'd like to hear her sing sometime, Miss Sagwell. I'll bet you've got a lovely vibrato. Oh, what he said. Tootsie, Dennis is on Jack Benny's program, but he's very unhappy. You see, he's cultured like us. Oh, I knew you were a kindred soul, Dennis. You have such a sensitive face. I'll say, every month it kills me when I have to shave it. Hey, I, I just had a marvelous idea. What, Gracie? I will go on Jack Benny's program with you and Dennis. Huh? Well, we'll change the name of that show from the Grape Nut Flake program to 30 Minutes of Refinement. I'll play the piano, Tootsie will sing, and Dennis will recite. Oh, boy, now you're cooking with death, if you'll pardon the expression. <laughs> I I'll tell George. Oh, George! Yeah? Uh, George, I've changed my mind. I've decided to go on Jack Benny's program after all. You mean it? Yes. Well, bless your heart. And now I'm going to get you that hat that goes with that fur coat. You mean this one? <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Come on, let's go to the studio. <laughs> Ready, everybody? Yes, Don. Yep, all set, Don. Well, stand by. We'll be on the air in just a second. The Grape Nuts Flakes uh, that's Program. Enough. That's enough, Don. Step aside, please. Huh? Gracious. <laughs> Wait a minute. He hasn't... Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we now present 30 Minutes of Refinement. Ready, Dennis and Tessie? Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All right, let's go. If you can keep your head on If you can keep your head on If you can Honestly, Jack, I did the best I could. Good night, everybody. If you can keep your head on. George and Gracie will be right back, so I have just a moment to make this one request. Friends, for the sake of your loved ones in service, for the sake of your loved ones at home, give to the American Red Cross War Fund. The Red Cross works on every war front, giving skilled care, saving lives. The Red Cross stands by on the home front, ready to meet sudden danger. But the Red Cross must raise $125 million to carry on its good work. So do your part. Give and give generously to the American Red Cross War Fund. Now, here are George and Gracie. Oh, good night, everybody. And Jack, hurry and get well. And please send the muffler. Good night, folks. program next week when we'll be broadcasting from Hollywood with Mary Livingston, Dennis Day, Rochester, and yours truly, Don Wilson. 
the makers of Grape Nuts Flakes want to extend their sincerest thanks to George Burns and Gracie Allen for pinch-hitting for Jack Benny on tonight's show. George and Gracie were presented every Tuesday night over another network by the makers of Swan, the new white floating soap. <laughs> 